Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Maladin Janovic of complementarytraining.com. Maladin is a physical preparation coach from Belgrade in Serbia. And Maladin has been involved in the physical preparation of professional, amateur, and recreational athletes of various ages in many sports such as basketball, soccer, Australian rules football, volleyball, martial arts, and tennis. In his free time, Maladin likes to do boxing, MMA, and lift heavy stuff, along with reading about statistics, learning or programming language. And Maladin also considers himself a bit of an Excel wizard. He also is interested in predictive analytics and machine learning. On this episode, Maladin and I discussed many topics, including Maladin's background, how difficult it was for Maladin to leave his position at Port Adelaide so he could be reunited with his son. Maladin tells us about his influences, both personal and professional. What are the good and not so good things that Maladin currently sees within the physical preparation profession? And what solutions would he offer for the not so good things that he has seen? Maladin gives us an insight into his overall training philosophy. Maladin speaks about the importance of being aware of the fact that there will always be uncertainties within our planning and to have contingencies in place to tackle this. Maladin talks about the potential to utilize an asymmetric risk-reward model, often used in fields like economics, for sports training and preparation. Maladin gives his thoughts on periodization. Maladin also gives us his insight into how he would run a sporting organization if he was given the responsibility to do so. Maladin speaks about how negative knowledge is more powerful, useful, and a robust form of feedback than positive knowledge. We both speak about how Alvar Meal's vertical integration model has influenced both of us with our programming over the years. Mladen gives us his thoughts on energy system development. Mladen shares his thoughts on velocity-based training. And finally, if Mladen could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was an outstanding episode with Mladen, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Okay, uh, Maladin Janovic, it's an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor to finally have you come on to the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. Just so you know, Maladin, I've been reading your material since like 2008, 2009, and I I always felt like a really good connection with your material because you were always writing about stuff that I was really into. So like I think one of the first articles of yours that I ever read was uh, about concurrent periodization, and that was at a time where like, I was like really getting into periodization, like concurrent and conjugate, and then like the confusion, the, the confusion between Louis Carl's Westside conjugate, but then there's the conjugate sequence system, and you were writing about all this stuff, and then I was even more intrigued that you were like my age, and I was like, holy shit, this guy's like my age, and he's like really fucking smart. So it's it really is a huge honor to have you come on, and, and uh, I'm so grateful that you made time. So I'm sure that everyone that's going to listen to this is going to know who you are in in, in terms of like you know. You're the guy who owns complimentary uh, at the complimentary training um, website and, you know, that they probably keep up to you on social media. But just for anyone who's been living under a rock, just fill us in in your background. 
So thanks. First of all, thanks for having me over. So people probably know because of my Borat accent from the videos. And <laughs> it's getting it's getting it's getting better though. It's getting better. I remember I remember hearing interviews that you back back to a while ago. I was like, oh, that's it's a rough accent. It's it's getting better. Yeah, uh, like funny enough, I I was I was on a dinner with Joel Jamieson. Uh, we, he had a seminar in uh, Ljubljana like two days ago. Oh wow! And I only I only, uh, I only met I was only I only had dinner with Joel and spent a whole week with him last month when I was in Seattle. Yeah, and uh, and Luca Hochevar and Mate Hochevar, who are the guys behind the Vigor, yeah, uh, Vigor ground. Yeah, yeah, I was there. So, yeah, they organized it, and we were sitting on, at at the dinner table. So we spoke about you know some guys losing, losing their Vimeo accounts or losing their you know followers, whatever you want to call it, on Instagram because they use illegal music or they didn't have a copyright for our music. Mm-hmm. And I said like, they're gonna probably sue me because of the Borat accent because I'm. I'm not using the copyright for using a Borat accent, so uh, that was quite funny. <laughs> uh, so yeah, thanks for having me over. Um, I mean, um, pretty straightforward story, so um, I don't want to go into much details. Probably the most boring parts of the all post podcast interviews is just you know talking about yourself. So I'm currently in Belgrade. Um, I've been employed in. Um, uh, Sweden for two years in Stockholm, St- uh, Hammarby football. Then I moved mm. to uh, Qatar, work work as a football physiologist in uh, Spire Academy for a few months. And then later, like last gig I have was with Port Adelaide uh, in Adelaide, Australia with um, uh, Aussie Rules Football. Um, last year, around July, I came back to Belgrade, family reasons, and I just started a company recently, and we just developed and actually um, put put in use the the new uh, tool for coaches called Athlete SR. So uh, now we are de- dealing with that mostly. Um, also, I'm also just finished the first first year of the uh, PhD program. So yeah, those are two things I'm doing at the moment. I'm actually also trying to write a book. Like maybe you know that uh, 2007, if I remember correctly, in 2011, I wrote two manuals about uh, physical preparation in soccer. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. So I'm, I'm I'm trying to do something similar because every few years I have so many things in my head and I try to, you know, make some sense out of all that chaos, trying to put things in 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 pretty much in in different I don't know, classifications or classes, just making sense of all this stuff and trying to find a signal from the noise. And last few years were being really, really hectic on my, I would say, training philosophy. A few things just changed. So I want to make sure that I'm, you know, I update those manuals and I put some, some of my ideas in paper, which is quite good also because most of the time when I write, I actually figure out new ideas or, or different ways to look at things. So, I mean, nothing new under the sun. It's just different way of looking at, at same things. So, so those are a few projects I'm working at the moment. Christoph, and just in, in terms of uh, when you were in Australia, how was your time there? How did you find it? You, you did seem to really enjoy it. And I, I must also say, Maladman, that I sent you a message at the time when I, when you kind of you put out why you had to leave and why you would go back. And it was to do with obviously spending time with your son and being a father was more important. And I, for one, uh, like, you know, I want to even say publicly, I said it to you at the time on Facebook, like, I, like, I usually commend what you've done. I think it was a, 
such a hard decision to do professionally, but I, I think it was the right decision to do. And from just one man to another, I, I, uh, I can only commend what you've done. I think it's amazing that you, you'd sacrificed that for your son. Yeah, thanks again for that. I mean, you, you'll be amazed how many messages I got because of that. So for some of the readers or listeners who don't know what, what happened pretty much is that I, I moved back from Australia. That, that was pretty much a, a dream job. Mm. So amazing place to work. Um, everything's, everything's fine, but, uh, you know, my son was here in Belgrade. I based, because of the competition calendar, which was quite weird for us Europeans, we had, <clears throat> we had like 10 months in a row of, uh, competitions and then we had a, a break. Then you have two months preseason and, and short break again. So those two breaks were quite back to back. So I'll probably, I'll, I'll be without seeing my son for like eight or 10 months. So I decided to, to come over to, to Serbia. So anyway, I wrote this, uh, I wrote this piece and a lot of people just contacted me and said like, this is, you know, I, I'm in a similar s- situation. So I think that's a big elephant in the room in our industry. People just, you know, moving away from families. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, can I swear? Uh, <laughs> in the show. Listen, uh, uh, this, you, come on, you, you must have listened to some of my episodes. I, I'm an Irishman. You can absolutely fucking swear in this podcast. Okay, that's good. Because I swear a lot. Uh, so me, there's me, a shit, me too, me too. <laughs> there's a shitload of, shitload of, uh, divorces in, in our industry. Mm, um, mm. you know, and e- even if they are not, you know, the spouses being, um, in different continents, you know, separated and that, that takes it toll. So, as I said, a lot of people just emailed me, said they are in, in similar situations. So, and they, uh, as you also, uh, con- I would say congratulate me and, and wish me best of luck and say that, that I did a good decision, which was, uh, really, really helpful in, in that, in that time. So, um, I mean, I can, I can only imagine because I, I, I knew when you had, like, I can remember back to even before when you got the position on Australia, like how elated you were, as you said, it was, it was a, it was a dream job, you know, but, um, and so, I mean, it, it was just, again, it, it was just when I, when I saw the decision, I just, I don't know, it's hard to express again. I'm not, I don't have a son or a father, but I guess again, it's just kind of from one man to another. And I suppose that, that the fact that myself and yourself have such love and passion for, for, for the same, for the same field that we want to be masters in. And I, I could only uh, have empathy at that. Like, you know, you, you nailed this job, but you know, you had to sacrifice it. And, and again, for, for the better, for the betterment of your son, it was, to me, it was the correct decision. I'd like to think I would have done the same, but you know, it t- took a lot of courage. And again, just could only commend your actions there. Oh man, it was a, it was a job that I waited all my life and it was really, really hard to, to, you know, just move back to Serbia. But, uh, Shit happens pretty much, and uh, I don't know. You never know what, why that might be good. That that's what we used to say in in Serbia. So uh, yeah, w- one thing also that happened there was that uh, uh, I was announced as pretty much as a second coming of Jesus Christ there. <laughs> so, like I'm gonna sort out everything, and that that created a little bit of friction within the team. So we try to sort that out, but um. Uh, Pretty much couldn't. So th- that's something that I, I I found out there uh, to be to be a, a little bit problematic. So yeah, as you know, it's just you know marketing and making big stories and stuff. You know, uh, but say we had three guys coming over and we had an interview with the news local newspapers and 
like 90% of the interview was was about me so yeah that created a little bit of you know friction with the team so i mean understandable but it's it's not something that i did so um i suppose that that should be addressed as well and uh, my, i haven't mentioned that uh, usually so it's something that's quite interesting the, as well the, 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 this is purely just a selfish question just for me cuz uh, i know you you've given us some of your background there but could you maybe give us the timeline of like your career so far? Because, like you know, as you said, you were in Sweden, you were in, we, you were in, you know, Aspire for a while. You interned at Boils, like you were at Boils, like literally like six months after I was there and interned. So, like it's just that you you've been so many places, and I suppose as well from being from Serbia, which like there probably is a lot, there probably is a few listeners, like, and again, I don't want to get any hate mail here, but. It's probably more American listeners might have ever heard of Serbia before because a lot, a lot of Americans I meet are can be a bit ignorant about world geography sometimes. Um, but uh, you know, from from for, for a young guy from Serbia, first of all, how did you get a passion and love for sports science and strength condition? And then maybe just like speak about like your sort of uh, I don't know if I call it frustrate frustrations, but I, I know that you know you, you've always kind of nearly felt like you'd have to get out of Serbia to kind of get what you want within the within the field so maybe give us a timeline of your career and like how first of all you even got into got into snc and sports and i said like, what was it you were like i love this yeah but, i mean most of the serbians want to get out of serbia which is pretty pretty common hmm. for the whole region here croatia you know croatia bosnia serbia slovenia macedonia and all around so yeah finishing I think, yeah, I finished 2007, I finished the, I got a bachelor degree, um, uh, University of Belgrade, so we, luckily, the, the uh, to be honest, the program was shit, so strength conditioning program, we were a sec- second generation of uh, mm. um, students at that program, and a year before that, we, we made this kind of petition to to the faculty to open up that, that uh, degree or that department, so... We were uh, pretty much the second generation, and there were some changes and reorganizations happening at the uni back then. So the program was pretty much hectic, and I would say shit. So uh, luckily, we had uh, one of the professors who's pretty much a legend, uh, Vladimir Koprivica. So he he uh, created a, a internship program with uh, basketball club Partizan. So few students went there to kind of coach and help. So I worked with the cadets, that's under 17 athletes. Uh, and, you know, I started doing warm-ups and all this stuff. And back in the day, I was blogging on Charlie, late Charlie Francis forum and also Mike Ball's forum. So probably that's, that was the time when I wrote that piece at Elite FTS, uh, a few pieces actually then. So, and then, you know, I was back and forth in soccer uh, my first international gig was 2008, if I remember correctly, which was really hectic year for me. And I was I was in in Istanbul in Turkey working with um, a few volleyball players, um, and I actually stayed there for a couple of months. Uh, after that, I was I was around one year in Serbia in a local uh, local uh, first division volleyball club with females. And that was 2009. 2010, I went to uh, Mike Boyle's over the summer. Yeah. So, yeah, and coming from USA, I, I did one one more year in, in football here in uh, uh, Football Club Rad, which which is the 
the club I started working with in 2000, 2007 uh, and 2008, I think. So that's a, that's a, I, w- I would say that I'm in, in debt to that club because uh, they accept, accepted me as a head strength conditioning coach right from from college, pretty much zero experience working in soccer. Man, I never wore cleats to be honest, and I was on the pitch with the athletes, and there was a there was a, a few news reporters, and it was really really stressful few few first few months actually. So, and you, probably everybody have been there listening. Um, you know, your your first professional gig is really stressful, mm. and especially soccer here. So, um, so anyway, I, I got um, I got a job offer to work in in Stockholm. Uh, Darcy Norman helped there. Uh, he recommended me over, and I went to Stockholm to Hammarby Football for two years. Um, that was 2012, 2013, mm. 2014. I was I was back in Serbia, and I got this um, offer to go to Aspire Academy. I was I was talking to Kenny McMillan, who was my boss in in Aspire. So I was in Aspire for uh, I think ten months, um, and during my stay there, I started talking to Darren Burgess. So this is this is a funny thing. So while I was in when I was in, in Stockholm, in Hammarby, I started learning R. So R is a programming language used for statistical analysis. Mm. And I was a programmer back back in the day in high school and elementary school. So I always had this um, interest for, for, for numbers and analysis. Uh, and while I was in while I was in Qatar, I was I was doing few um, dashboards for our data. So learning Power BI and you know, uh, Excel. Uh, and I also did a few analysis in, in R and I participated in one online course and there was a, one of the most interesting tasks there was that um, they provided a sample data from IFL. So they had these performance metrics uh, for every quarter. So number of passes, number of kicks, you know, number of marks and the quarter outcome. So the task was to predict, actually to check if you can predict the quarter outcome from the metrics. So I did this analysis uh, and I published it on a blog. There's there's an article on the blog still. Uh, and the next day I got a call from Darren Burgess saying that this was anonymous data and this is a Port Adelaide data. <laughs> so we started talking about, you know, uh, going to Australia, which I always wanted to go. Um, and we started talking about, you know, the, the position. So we ended up with a dual position, which was um, assistant strength conditioning coach. So I assisted um, to Mackers, Ian McCann. Uh, and so that was, uh, you know, dual role strength conditioning and, and data analyst. Mm. So 2000 and that, that was 2015, 16, I was in Port Adelaide. And yeah, a few months down the road, uh, I decided to move back because, as I mentioned, the, the family issues and being unable to to see my son. Big, you know, the the main reason was that um, uh, divorce and and my wife didn't want to relocate to Australia, so it was it was quite, you know, it was ca- quite hard to be there without the son. So yeah, yeah, completely get that. And t- thanks for that. Uh, something I always wanted to to ask you about was your your family because that's. That's some journey already. And Malad, you're are you, are you even are you 30 yet? Are you or how old are you? I'm gonna be 35 in a few days. You're gonna be 35. Five. Five. Okay. Still, like you're 
I'm 30, so like you know, so you're still very young, and that's that's just that's a lot of a lot of chipped around already for someone uh, for someone who's only 35, you know. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, career story so far. But I suppose the next question I, I love to ask Madden is in, in terms of your influences, who have been the biggest influences on you professionally and also personally? Uh, late Charlie Francis, definitely. So um, his forum was. One um, amazing place, and I believe you you were on the forum as well, um, if I remember correctly. So that forum started, I think, 2001, uh, and and Charlie died, I think, 2007 or 2008. Uh, 2000, or, oh, 2010, I think he died. Two, yeah, 2010. Yeah, just before me going to 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 Mike Boyles. Mm. So yeah, yeah, you are right. 2010. So the forum was you know alive for like a decade, and it attracted a lot of you know minds. So uh, I, I still communicate with with few guys from the forum, and you know, I met a few. But as I said, that was an amazing place, where, you know, where people shared, um, you know, questions, articles, and and stuff like that. Nowadays, everybody has a blog, so the forums are pretty much dead, and everybody's, you know, everybody willing to write and being good at writing is is having his own website or blog. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So back to your question, it was definitely Charlie Francis. Uh, as of late, that that's um, Dan Baker, uh, Joe Ken, uh, Mike Boyle, definitely. Um, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of people. I probably forgot a lot of them. So um, mm, yeah, guys from um, Guys from uh, Motor Learning, Keith, Keith, Keith Davis. Yeah, Keith Davis, yeah, he's good. Yeah, guy. yeah, amazing, amazing, amazing stuff, amazing books. So I would say those those few guys, but definitely Charlie uh, and Dan Baker, like one of the top 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 guys. Yeah, yeah, I was only I was only speaking to Dan there the other day, Dan Baker. Um, yeah, I speak to Dan regularly enough, so I would. He's a great student. And I'm actually doing my master's in St. Mary's in Twickenham. He's one of our adjunct lecturers, so he comes in every every on-site and does a workshop and a few lectures. And this this summer, he did a lot, obviously, on VBT and did a bit on his long-term athletic, um, his long-term athletic development pathway, which is also really good stuff. So, yeah, Dan's definitely a top guy. And he's just he's just a really sound guy, a really top human being. It's hilarious he is. Yeah, the the one thing I regret is that I actually haven't met him in person while I was in Australia. So I regret that, and I hope to meet the guy soon. Uh, he will definitely. The guy's traveling around the place, so no doubt he'll be it. <laughs> no doubt you'll cross paths at some stage. Um, so I'm gonna the next question, and then we'll get a little more into like specific questions that that kind of that I feel like you're sort of more of an expert and master in. Um, in terms of the good and not so good things you see within the physical preparation and sports science professions. What 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 are the what are the things that make you proud to be a sports scientist and a physical preparation coach within our profession? And then at the other end of that question, what are the things that don't make you so proud to be a sports scientist and physical preparation coach? And with the stuff that doesn't make you so proud, like what what sort of solutions would you offer? That's a tough question. So what makes me proud as well? Yeah, take it easy a little bit. So, uh, yeah, what makes me proud? Um, uh, personally, uh, personally, I think I personally I think I, I help more other or fellow fellow sports scientists and strength conditioning coaches by making you know tools uh, for them to use and making their life easier. So that that 
kind of make me proud because uh, I help I help them I help the industry at least I try mm. so that that makes me proud as a now just personally. just 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 so you know now where I, I don't mean individually as you I mean as a collective profession like what makes you proud to be within our profession and not proud to be within our profession so it's not it's not directed towards you as an individual yeah to, to be honest I'm not that really good with touchy feely stuff uh, so um, um, I would say like a, the, the, the thing that makes me proud is that we allow athletes to make money for longer so um, usually we we help them extend their careers uh, hopefully that that's our goal so uh, that's one of the the good things uh, the the next good thing that makes me proud is that um we we sometimes represent a buffer between the coach or or, or skill coach or, or or the the main sport in general mm. uh, and the athletes and we make sure that um, some of those coaches don't make crazy stuff um, and we make sure that um, the kids get get um, good movement or multilateral development and movement movement based training and make sure we create a robust athlete that, that can sustain specific training, um, you know, improving the health and uh, mostly, you know, protecting from a, from a downside sort of. So that, that makes me proud to, to be part of this uh, industry. Um, the, the thing that does make me proud, especially as a sports scientist, is that we have this publish or perish stuff happening in, in some of the um, academies and some of the, you know, sports science uh, uh, facilities. Uh, and some of the sports scientists just, just you know, see the athletes as, as pretty much the numbers or the subjects to be collected data from uh, for, for their uh individual I would say personal benefit of you know writing articles so that that doesn't make me proud at all and hopefully we're gonna we're gonna end up practices soon um, so that that's one thing the other thing also that doesn't make me proud and I think uh, that that that's gonna change in the near future is this sort of a separatism between strength conditioning and, and skill practices. Um, mm, mm, that's a big one, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, I, I mean, my experience with American sports is not really great. So, but I can see, say that, I can see those two extremes of the continuum. So, for example, European soccer, we have the ex-athletes or or the, the coaches who weren't really good at being you know, head coaches, so they became strength conditioning coaches, and then we see these circus tricks performed in in European soccer as a strength conditioning. Um, you know, everything needs to be done with the ball. You know, if you if you pick up anything heavier than a pink dumbbell, you're gonna become slower. All that stuff, and then on the opposite extreme, we have I would say American football, where um, you know, it, it's the it's the mindset. You know, make them big, make, make them strong in the gym, and they're gonna improve automatically on the pitch, which is also, I would say, a, a biased view of of this relationship. 
Definitely. So yeah, something that 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 balanced these two extremes, you know, just seeing that things are not either or and and not everything should be performed with the ball on the other side. So something that kind of integrates two aspects. Yeah, I mean, you you still need to separate, uh, but not not as much. And also you need to integrate, but not as much. And I usually say that a, a lot of different industries have same same issues. So so for example, I had a few arguments with few strength conditioning coaches working in soccer, and they said that. You know the main the main objective of the strength conditioning coach would be to for the team to win a game, which I you know highly agree. But then you are not directly responsible, or you you cannot directly control your team winning the game, which is you know you can make them the fittest team in the squad in the league, and they might end up you know playing poorly. So that's not something you you directly control. But Having said that, a, a lot of different industries, or pretty much every business, have same same issues between you know segregation and integration. So if you're if you're running a business, and you might have a you know research and development department, you might have a, you might have a, a marketing department, you might have finance, you might have HR. You know, they are, uh, the, the goal is making profit in this case. So making creating a, something valuable for the customers that customers are willing to to pay for. And that, that's an ultimate goal, pretty much, of the business. But those departments need to be run under that kind of that umbrella. But they all have their own own objectives. So uh, sim- similar in in high performance sports, or pretty much sports in general, is that um you know the goal is to win, but you know each department should be responsible for you know different components of you know that that kind of help with the winning. Uh, so they need to be aligned with the winning strategy, but you know, still responsible for their own domain, if that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely, it's a great answer, Solis. Um, Maladin, the question I've always wanted to ask you, um, and since I've always wanted to get you on the podcast, and I do ask this uh, most of our guests as well. If I was to pose the question to you, like, what is your training philosophy? Um, I know some coaches don't like the word philosophy. They prefer it to be asked, what is their training system or what are the principles that they abide by in terms of developing a training system? But basically, I suppose another way of putting it is if you had to now write a book on this is the Maladin Janovich training system, so like we have the Charlie Francis training system, what would the Maladin Janovich's training system book, what what, what would that book outlay out, out for us? So basically, what is your, your training philosophy? And maybe... Take this just from pure, you know, athlete developments that's applicable to all sports. And I, I, I think over the last few years I changed some of my thinking regarding that. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I'm, I'm trying to write a book about it. So something that um, that's been, I would say, in my head recently is this. This idea that actually we, we are we are dealing with uncertainties pretty much all the time. Yeah. So and we need to make decisions, training decisions, and in that uncertainty, in terms of you know you know you never know how a certain athlete might react to a training. So even if you repeat the same training with the same person, you know six months down the road they might you know react differently. So pretty much, you have a lot of sources of uncertainties and and risk in training. And lately I've been I've been thinking more and more about other domains where they have similar issues and how they sort, of, sort those things out. 
Mm. And I found I found few very interesting, um, I would say, frameworks and 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 solutions to to this dilemma in IT, so internet or actually information technologies or you know um, software development. Um, and one of those is you know agile development, um, uh, pretty much the Scrum framework and. I also found a lot of interesting things in uh, research behind decision-making, especially using heuristics. Mm-hmm. So I would say, I would say that, that, that my system now revolves around, um, I would say, the decision-making un- in uncertainty and having few models that are robust. So rather than having one philosophy, I would say you better have few, few uh, models or mental models that, you know, helps in uh, making decisions uh, when, when you work with athletes. And then uh, we, we can go more deeper into that, but pretty much revolves around that. So um, um, also the, the stuff by, um, uh, by Nassim Taleb, especially the, um, the, the Black Swan book and uh, Anti-Fragile, which were quite popular a few, few years ago, mm-hmm. um, I found the, this idea of the barbell strategy quite quite interesting, um, and pretty much everything revolves around these complementarities, and that, that's the you know that's the reason for the the name of my blog. So rather than trying to pinpoint to either or factor, so this or that, uh, I, I believe that usually we need to figure out the the way to reconcile two or more opposing thoughts or or, or even models. So, uh, for example, the one very, very, I would say, common um, example of the barbell strategy or or or, com- or, uh, or com- complementary pairs would be, um, on one side, improving performance of the athletes, and the, on on the other side, making sure that they are robust and and injury uh, resilient. I would yeah. say so. They are they are. They're able to perform their sport. They're, you know, available for the coach, for the selection, and so forth. So, as I said, we we have this idea that um, s- some of the coaches, you know, focus on one aspect and neglect the other. So, you know, more and more coaches are becoming rehab therapists now, and they're just doing breathing drills and all that shit. Which is, <laughs> I'm saying, it's important. It, it's just part of the of the overall overall strategy that that helps with, you know. Um, Improving performance or, or decreasing injury risk, but we need to we need to see that there are two components, pretty much yin and yang, sort of. So absolutely, yeah. I would say I'm I'm, I'm a Taoist when it comes to <laughs> training philosophy. Not sure yeah. that, that directly answers your question, but um. No, uh, it, it it does to a degree, and I'll ask another few of this to get a little more specific. But I, I was about to mention. Nassim Taleb's books, because I, I, I remember you, again, out on your social media, on your Facebook, you, you were saying that Taleb's work was having a, a big influence on you. And I know is uh, you were reading a lot of work on uh, nonlinear pedagogy as well, um, you know, complex systems. And I suppose, you know, everyone's talking about dynamical systems theory and the constraints-led approach to learning and stuff like that. So uh, I, I knew that was kind of on your radar. Um, I, I suppose as well... Like if if you were to be brought in now to an organization, Malad, and say it's like an Aspire type academy type thing, what and you were given the keys to the kingdom, like how would you go about setting up that organization, like from the top down? Uh, 
I would say your last sentence is key here because most of those organizations are set top down. So I would try to make it set up bottom up. Mm. And most of most of these academies and organizations have this 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 thing that's common to them. So since all academies want want their own signature in quotation marks, so uh, the, the, most of them they have this long term plan that that's top down. So we have um you know. The head guy designing the schedule, designing the, the, the training component, training content, and then they hire coaches and they just, you know, tell them to follow the script. And um, not sure that works, actually. So you still need to have, um, I would say, a signature of the academy, something yes. that's, you know, yeah. centralized. But you need to, excuse me, you need to allow coaches to do their own magic. So... Suppose, you know, even in Aspire, you have, you know, they hire top-notch coaches, but they, some of those coaches come over there and they've been instructed to follow a certain script. For example, on Monday, we are doing, you know, pressing. On Tuesday, we are doing gym. On Wednesday, you know, we are doing, you know, set pieces and, and things like that. So just, you know, really, really structured, um, which I don't think it's it's really a good thing. So yeah. in my mind, in my do, mind, do, 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 do you think that, that restricts building resiliency in in that it's because it's too structured it's too much it's too much stability not enough variability and we know that organisms with higher variability are generally more resilient more robust and you know generally will perform better the the thing is risk distribution so uh, uh, nassim taylor talks about it so if you have a if you have a centralized system that makes all the decisions yeah and uh, if if that unit did a mistake it's going to affect everyone. But if you distribute the risk and if one coach make a stupid decision, stupid stuff, it's going to only affect that local group. And I'm also talking about, you know, uh, um, you know, sporting bodies in, in a country. Mm. So, um, uh, it, it sounds very similar to what Bosch talks about, even within the body in terms of running, you know, that if it was this, cause his whole thing is like, and it's not even just Francis, but people are saying that, if if like motor learning was a top down approach, if the system made a mistake, it would be fucked. Whereas if if it's if it's both a top down and it's also getting stuff from the bottom up, it lessens the it lessens the risk of a of a major error because the system can self correct because it has this two way system rather than top down. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, talking about that, uh, I think there are intrinsic dynamics, and I think that's actually the name for it. So. Every joint, all these stuff in your body has this, you know, intrinsic dynamics that, you know, moves itself in a, in a way. So it's self-organized sort of talking, speaking. So, uh, and, and, and some things are not regulated by the brain. They are just, they just happen. Yeah. So, and talking about organization, I, I believe there's a generalizability. So we can generalize from one complex system to another. Yeah. And it, that's quite interesting. In, in complex systems theory. So talking about the academies and all that stuff is that um, I think the leadership should be based around something that's called a servant leadership. So they just need to make sure to remove the obstacles for the, for the coaches in terms of, you know, organization, money, and, and information collection rather than, you know, imposing a certain uh, long-term athlete development plan, which is quite strict. And, you know, you remember how many times we, we changed the opinion in sports science. So, you know, 
then 20 years ago, running, you know, jogging was, you know, the best thing you can do. It, you know, it, 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 uh, um, it strips down the body fat. It, it cures cancer and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. and then every five years or, or a few years, everything changes. So, you know, strength training made you slow 20 years ago or something like that. And then 10 years ago and five years ago, you know, it was all interval training and fucking strength is the great thing now. Don't do any slow aerobics. Yeah, exactly. You'll burn so, all your muscle. Yeah, yeah. So imagine, imagine a centralized academy which which believes certain thing to be true. So it's like dogma. It's similar to politics. So you have one dogma imposed on everyone, you know, top down, and then you, you figure out you you've been wrong for like five years or ten years, and it's like you're screwed. So rather than doing that, I would say you you want you even want to to force or, or kind of stimulate the randomness in the organization, you know, attracting different people with different styles of coaching, different systems, you know, you know, they, you know, different people believe in different um, qualities to be important. So, you know, hiring different people, uh, it's like a wisdom of the crowd. So, and rather than telling them what to do. So I think that's, you know, a problem of most of, most of academies or most organizations, you know, this, dilemma between centralized and distributed practices again it's a complementarity aspect i i believe there needs to be kind of balance between the two those two extremes again example of the barbell strategy if you're you know as i mentioned if you're familiar with nasim taleb stuff i i'm from i i have taleb's books all right but i haven't i haven't officially read them but i i've I've only just gotten the gist of, of what he's getting across in the books from secondhand accounts like yourself and a few of the guys at, at Altus. That again, it's to do with like complex systems and this idea that we just can't predict things. So uh, um, to explain the barbell strategy in short, I'll use the investment. So imagine you want to invest certain money in, in very risky domain. Yeah. So first of all, you want to protect from the downside. So if something happens, you want to make sure that doesn't hurt you badly. Yeah. It's like a, 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 asymmetric risk rewards, what they call it, isn't it, in investment? Yeah, yeah. So th- there's a there's a saying in, in in English, I think, don't put all eggs in the same basket. Yeah, yeah. But then on the on the flip side, you, you want to uh, that, that's gonna make you you know risk protected. So if something happened, you're not gonna break all the eggs. You know, <laughs> that makes sense. So that's one side of the barbell. On the other side of the barbell, barbell, uh, you do need to invest in high risk, high reward stuff. But in a way, so if it, if you win, you're gonna win big. But if you lose, it's not gonna hurt you. So that's pretty much anti-fragility. Yeah. So I believe that that type of reasoning, the the barbell strategy, should be used in long-term development plans and and uh, and even decision making in 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 team sports or any other sport or high-performance sports. So for example, if you're working as a strength conditioning coach, your first priority. Um, and I'm going to be Machiavellian in this regard. So the, the first, the first objective of the leader is to stay on the leadership position. So, and how do you achieve that? So first of all, what's going to get you fired is getting athletes injured. So, you know, priority number one is making sure that, at, you know, minimal amount of eggs get broken. So you want to make sure athletes stay healthy. They stay on the pitch. They are available for the coach, for the practices and games. So that's priority number one. So that's one side of the barbell. And the other side of the barbell is, you know, improving performance. So you want to invest in, I would say, higher risk, higher reward um, activities or decisions. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, 
coming back to or going back to uh, your question about the philo- you know my training philosophy i believe that's the you know that's the great example of you know um using using models from different domains in our own industry absolutely, absolutely. so that that you would be a, a sort of underpinning principle of your philosophy currently at the moment and how you how you think about organizing training yeah i might be i might be more risk averse than than other people or i might be more on that side so um as i said your main main goal first goal is to make sure you stay employed as as a strength conditioning coach and you know to do that you you want to make sure that athletes are staying healthy so and charlie francis used to say it's it's better to be uh if i remember correctly it's better to be under trained than over trained yeah, the the a saying I got from Dan Fat, and maybe he got it from someone else, but yeah. that, that Dan said uh, he would he preferred to be uh, a mile under trained than an inch over trained because he, he was like you can always make up for it. Yeah, exactly right. So that that's one of the examples of the of this barbell strategy. Yeah, yeah, well, great stuff. Well, and the question I've always wanted to ask you too, and I suppose there's probably some listeners who were like, oh, ask him, ask him. Uh, you kind of came to the foe for being very known for your sort of research and background into periodization models. So with just regards to like all these different periodization models over the years from your studying of periodization models, and I suppose lately periodization's kind of made this big sort of, you know, uh, you like resurface resurfacing because of the work of John Kiley and you know, I've interviewed uh, Greg Half and Mike Stone, and they kind of disagree completely with John. And I think it's just to do with, like a bit of misunderstanding. Like, so again, it's kind of like John's not saying that you don't plan. He's just saying that you can't say that you 100% know what's going to be the outcome of this plan because, again, going back to things like Taleb saying that we can't predict things, and you know, just that the, the human organism is a complex, uh, dynamic system, so you can never say with 100% certainty this is the exact adaptation you're going to get. So. John's just saying that you need to be very fluid within your within your models um, and within your structures. But when you hear the term periodization now, and you've you've had some some great articles out there, you know, you had as I said at the start of the show when you wrote like the concurrent strategy or concurrent periodization, and then you had that you know uh, what the heck is periodization anyway article series, which was fantastic. Um, just when when periodization when you hear that word now, like what kind of comes to your mind and what have you kind of taken away from the years of your study of periodization models? I mean, periodization is pretty much planning. So, mm. in in my mind, planning and programming. And by periodization, people people also refer to a certain well-defined strategies in in distributing load or distributing, you know, uh, either load or or uh, developmental of certain qualities. Mm. So, and I've, I've been, you know, I've been thinking about this, you know, a lot. So, um, what I believe is that uh, we all have these certain mental models and sometimes we are aware we are using them and most of the time we are not. Uh, and that, that's why the confusion starts. Uh, first of all, we have this idea that there are certain qualities that exist. So, some of these qualities um a result of something that's called a factor analysis. So, for example, if you have a shitload of tests, so like, you know, everything you can test, 10 meter, you know, bench press, squat, 1RM, number of reps at 60%, everything like that. And then you have this maybe a 1,000 athletes and you have, you know, shitload of tests. 
and you put that in a, something that's called a factor analysis, so it, it finds certain tests that correlate between themselves and doesn't correlate with other tests. And then you end up with, with something that's called a biomotor abilities. So for, you know, as you know, like speed, mm-hmm. endurance, strength, you know, explosiveness and so forth. So we believe these qualities exist in, in some type of, I will use a philosophical term like platonistic world of ideas. So they exist somewhere. And then, first of all, that's, that's a one mental model. And, and, um, and then we kind of um, separate separate those qualities in pretty much two components. First, first one is you know potential, having a potential, and second one is ability to express that potential. So pretty much we have this physical on one side, and then we have a skill on the other side. Yeah. Uh, so we have this dichotomy right from the start, and from this simple dichotomy, then we have this hierarchy of of, of qualities of biomotor qualities. And then depending on the author, then, you know, each of those big major qualities have subcomponents. So, for example, strength, you have a starting strength, you have absolute strength, you have relative strength. You know, it's just mind-boggling how many qualities are there. So this is a mental model we, we, we tend to use. So once we have these mental models, we pretty much have these Legos, so like, like building blocks. And then we start building a training program. So... And, and people argue about, you know, about layering the bricks. So, so suppose you, uh, I, I, I call this a jar example. Suppose you have three jars and you need to distribute like one kilo or, or two pounds of, you know, sugar, flour, and say oil uh, into those jars. And, you know, you can decide to, to put, you know, only flour in, in one jar and oil in another jar and, and sugar in, in the third jar. So there's unlimited, unlimited combinations. So you can, you can, you can do. Um, and mostly they, they fall on a continuum of, you know, um, mixed where you kind of mix and, and concentrate. So it's, it's kind of like a di- diluted and concentrated continuum. So those two, or, you know, how many models I mentioned. So, uh, actually, the mental models, how do we classify things or how do we classify performance and then how we distribute, how we distribute that development of that performance pretty much creates all, all periodization strategies. So suppose we have five qualities that are important and then we want to develop all five qualities in a, a, within a certain time frame. Um, then we call this a mix, mixed periodization or parallel periodization mm. or co- concurrent periodization. But if we decide, okay, no, we're gonna, we're gonna distribute certain amount of time and energy in developing one quality and leave other qualities alone and then we're gonna sequence and then we have this, you know, I would say a sequential periodization. So this is, this is related only to, um, I would say, um, also call it a high zoom level of, you know, how are we going to develop those qualities we identified at a given, in a given time frame. So there are a few combinations. And then later, you know, you can go deeper and say, like, how are we going to distribute the training load uh, within each of those qualities we identified as important? So um, I, one of the best articles, um, I, I don't know if, if it's still online, uh, was from Carlo Buzichelli on, on periodization. So it's great article that outlines this kind of process. Uh, but 
all this is, as Nassim Taleb called, um, um, fragile approach. So it's like makes us fragilistas because we believe that, you know, certain, certain sequencing is better than, you know, different sequencing. And we also believe that, you know, laying out this, you know, quite, quite nice plan, you know, for, for a year is, is a, is a way to go. But as John Kiley said a few times or wrote fantastic articles about it is that, uh, we are, we are unable to predict what's going to work for a certain athlete and sports science doesn't help there as well because sports science or, or actually the research is based on, on, on group averages or, or like a, a group averages and, and, and inferences to a population. So even if you know, even if you know that certain intervention is going to have a positive effect, uh, uh, you, you have this confidence interval or confidence levels. How that how that intervention is going to affect the average of your team? But as a coach, you're not interested in in average. You're interested in if this intervention is going to help John or Luke or or Mike. So that that creates this uh, separatism between coaches or or artists and 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 scientists. So, um, but this doesn't mean that we need to ditch the science. You know, our contrary. So, um, as I mentioned, there, 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 um, there are quite similar issues in other domains. So, for example, in 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 something that's called a lean manufacturing, which is which is a, a framework for uh, organizing production, uh, they have something that's called uh, standardized work. So, some standardized work is something that's being, you know, shown to work over the years. So, we have this. Pretty much the old school training, you know, we, we have, we, we know that certain methods work better than others. And then we have, and on, on the other side, we have this experimentation. And a lot of coach needs, still needs to experiment. So even like, especially on the highest level of performance. So we have this, something that's standardized, um, that we can use to start from. And then we pretty much need to experiment and get a feedback and, and try different things. So I'm pretty much aligned, aligned, and I agree with, with John Kiley when he says that we need to be fluid. But uh, being fluid doesn't mean we need to, you know, uh, throw a pasta plate against the wall and see what sticks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and one interesting thing also regarding regarding this and regarding the Nassim Taleb stuff is that um, negative knowledge is more robust than positive knowledge. And let let me expand about this one. So negative knowledge is is uh, knowing what doesn't work. So if something doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if something works, so that's a positive knowledge. Uh, it might work uh, occasionally, or it might work for a you know specific um, individual or in specific situations. So negative knowledge or or knowing what's pretty much useless is more robust or more insightful than than positive knowledge. So if someone said, okay, I did these breathing drills. And they work wonders for my shoulder. So you might say, okay, that's positive knowledge. But then you might also you might also know that certain training strategies didn't work for anyone. So that's more robust. So I would say um, rather than than growing up your knowledge tree, we need to start trimming that tree. So making sure that okay, this is pretty much experimental. We can experiment with this, but these few things are are key. So. Um, 
I guess that this is also a part of the philosophy. So, you know, making sure that we, we understand the difference between what works, what might work, and what certainly doesn't work. Mm. So just doing, you know, bullshitting on a possible definitely doesn't work in, in terms of in increasing performance and that stuff. But it doesn't, doesn't mean that we shouldn't experiment with that with certain athletes, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. And something I actually wanted to ask you about, I'm, I'm very sure it was on Kier's podcast you said this, I think it was on Kier's one, but uh, you spoke about the influence of Al Vermeil's training model on you. And the reason I bring that up is because that has been a huge influence on me. So that sort of underground book that Al wrote that like it's never been officially published, but that like a lot of us have. Because it's funny, when I was at IFAS with Bill Hartman, um, I, this is in 2015, like I, I, I visited Westside, then I went to IFAS, and then I went and spent two days with Al in his house. And when I was at IFAS and I was telling Bill, oh, I'm going, we're, we're going on to see, uh, Cincinnati now to see Al. And then Bill just looked at me and goes, do you have the book? And I was like, I was like, Al's book? And he goes, yes. And I was like, yes, I do. And it was really like, you know, a brotherhood thing. And then when I, when I heard you talking about, you know, that you, you have the book and, you know, he has that, he has that chart in it where he has all these different physical capacities or, you know, um, different training qualities or, you know, some people want to say biomore qualities. And the way then he, like said, he basically has a, a model very similar to charity in that it's a concurrent model, but really it's an emphasis concurrent model, you know, so you're going to emphasize one particular quality while you maintain the other qualities. And uh, it was interesting when I heard you say like that, you know, you, you like that model and, and that's an influence too, because one thing that, and I heard, I think you said this in that podcast. One thing that always made no sense to me in programming was you get these coaches and they just kept recycling the plan every year. It was like, okay, they go through like a hypertrophy and then a strength and then a power. And it's like, why don't you like get some performance measures to say where each player is in terms of their deficiencies? And then with the time that you have, which is usually fairly limited for most coaches, focus on those weak points within that hierarchy structure that Al presented. It always made more sense to me that you were basically, you know, making a diagnosis and then giving a, 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 an individual prescription rather than just like this fucking cookie cutter. Everyone goes through the same cycle every year over and over again. So maybe just the question is like, you know, have you kind of used any of that stuff from Al in terms of that model Maladin, with any of the coaching jobs that you've had had? And then, I suppose, how have you kind of taken that then if you have and, and integrated with this kind of new framework of Taleb's work and, and this kind of dynamic systems theory? So I, I was lucky enough to read this book quite early. So I think in 2007 or something. Wow. Maybe earlier. Well, yeah, I got it so, in 2010, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, amazing. It was amazing. I mean, some of the stuff in that book is, you know, old. Mm. You know, the, the rehab stuff is quite quite old, maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like anything. Some parts are like, eh, other parts are like, oh, this is very good. It's like, a, it's kind of like when you, I don't know about you, whenever I read like Paul Czech stuff, like I love reading Czech stuff for like spiritual and personal development and some nutrition stuff. But then when you get into some training stuff, I'm like, mm, I'll skip over that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but, you know, it took me, it took me a while to understand maybe deeper meanings of that book. And mm. I remember back then I didn't understand why he doesn't have any cycles. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was like, you know, why, why, you know, why Isle is not following like Bompa stuff, like, you know, doing anatomic adaptation and then going for a hypertrophy and then max strength and then conversion and, you know, recycle that. And it took me years and years to figure out, figure that out. And then now I think, I think I, I finally figured it out. Maybe I'm wrong, but, uh, uh, the thing is, like, why would you do hypertrophy phase with someone who doesn't need hypertrophy? Exactly. But like, it's, fu it's funny you say that because 
I've been, I've been, I've been programming like that since 2011, and no one else was talking about it. And then I, it's kind of like the the essay from I don't know if you ever heard of Ralph Waldo Emerson. He called it self reliance, and basically the essay he says the reason why most of us never like, never like like bring our own thoughts into the world, or the reason why we never like make big leaps of faith is because the uh, uh, like on an original thought is because the thought is ours, and the fact that it's ours, we question is it really a, a legitimate like thought to have or like you know, basically we, we we doubt ourselves so much that we we don't put ourselves forward so like i was kind of programmed like that and i was like you know am i correct in doing this because see i looked around and no one else was doing it and i was like am i interpreting al's work right here or not so then like you know you kind of get this like uh, you doubt yourself where like you sh- i shouldn't have basically what i'm saying and people shouldn't have if, if they think that they, what you're doing is correct man I, I was lucky to work in soccer in a way because we didn't have time to have those cycles so what, what you did, you just, you know, you pretty much lifted and try to cover all the bases. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we didn't have, like, time to do anatomic adaptation phase, you know, all these nice cycles. So we didn't have time for that. Uh, so, um, you know, that, that, that was a constraint of the system. But now even if I didn't ha- have constraints, like time constraints, I would still prefer something that, that, that I'll did. So yeah, yeah. I... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly the same because I had the same constraints. I'd only have eight weeks, so I was like, I can't go through these cycles. So, again, what I'd done was that after I did, like, my testing, my performance testing or my athletic profiling, I got to book the players into where they needed to be uh, based off their deficiencies off Al's model. Sorry, I keep cutting into you, but keep going. Yeah, so uh, uh, I, I, was, I would say I was lucky or unlucky uh, to, to work in soccer and uh, – you know, it took me it took me a few years to figure out that all these models that 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 are you know taught to us in in colleges and and stuff doesn't work at least in 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 Europe working you know high performance soccer because we don't have time to develop stuff you know all, all this stuff doesn't work. Um, yeah, my 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 thought just ran away. <laughs> um, I wanted to say yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff, a lot of material coming you know in strength condition comes from usa and most of it come from college yeah. systems where yeah. they have like all really long off season yeah. like our off season is like two weeks and for those two weeks you don't want to bother athletes with training so you tell them okay go fuck around uh you know try to be stay you know physically active maybe do another sport and here's like two times or three times a week strength training program whenever you want to do it you don't have a control over them some of them go and, and train with their individual trainers. But, uh, you know, you don't have time for this, you know, elaborate planning and the phases and all this stuff. So that, that was, um, I would say, unfortunate and at the same time also fortunate mm. to, to figure out that, you know, you can't, cannot follow that, that type of a collegiate track and field uh, um, program in, you know, working with team sports. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Milan, a few, like a few more things I definitely want to address with you. And if you have to, if you have to go or anything like that, I mean, I, I'm okay for time. But if you have to go, let me know. Um, is energy system training is definitely something I want to talk to you about because obviously there was, as you kind of touched and alluded to earlier, there was that huge swing in the pendulum. So you know, years ago, 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, aerobics was fucking great for everyone and great for heart health and all this and. Then there was this big anti-aerobic swing there about maybe 15 years ago to 10 years ago. You know, everything was intervals, intervals. And then 
I suppose, Joel Jameson when he came out with the ultimate MMA condition, and then you had the likes of David Haney from the Seattle Sounders, who's recently just left the Sounders, coming on to the strengthcoach.com forums, and these guys were kind of like blowing this sort of myth out of the water that aerobic training made you slow, and then this like whole alactic aerobic sort of, you know, specific energy system training for most field-based games and court-based sports kind of came on to the scene. And you wrote extensively on some of the energy systems. So, so just in terms of, of energy system developments, I know that you, you are more so into, like, you know, soccer and you've worked with Aussie rules and you've worked mainly with sort of, quote-unquote, electric aerobic sports. What What's your current thought on, you know, energy system development? Because it's it's, it's nearly like, it's nearly like everyone is anti-glycolytic now. It's like anti-lactic work is terrible. Like stay away. From, like that's the big bad guy in the room now. But like, what, what is your overall thoughts on energy system development for what's for? And I'll make it specific for mainly field-based sports. So I would say first of all, the, the mental model we use, going back to this, is we use this physiological model hmm. of you know VO2 max. We pretty much have like VO2 max, like the threshold running economy, and everything revolves around those three. Um, and then we had we had research in, in, in say soccer and team games showing that the fitter you are, the, the more you're gonna run in a game. But now recent research showed actually that's not the case. Uh, so f- first of all, we need to we need to we need to redefine what endurance is in team sports. And I like some of the stuff by Raymond Verheyen where he actually said that um, um, ability to maintain actually the ability to maintain quality and frequency of actions and actions in quotation mark. Uh, so the action in football is pretty much being able to read the game, make a good decision, um, and then deploy a certain technique. So it's not just about running. It's also about reading its perception. It's, it's, you know, making quality, high intensity actions with, with short rest and, you know, prolonging that for 90 minutes. And just being, you know, mentally there for 90 minutes also demands certain type of uh, mental endurance. Yeah. So the problem, the problem started when we, when we, when we use this physiological model from track and field pretty much and try to deploy that to a team based sport with, you know, which besides action also demands interaction between, you know, certain athletes. So, um, but Maladma, is, is it not a kind of either or there? Like, cause, like, I absolutely agree that you do need to integrate, obviously, the energy systems with the technical tactical aspects of the sport, but you, you'd never, you, you, and maybe, maybe I'm, I'm taking you up around here, but, like, at the same time, to fully maximize an energy system, like, you would probably, like, you can't do that with a sport implement. Uh, that's a that's a good question, and I, and I spend um, hours talking to to coaches working in soccer about that. So um, I think we have two components, and we need to you know we need to think about it. The first one is the potential, as I mentioned before. That's yeah, one of the main yeah, models. Exactly, the potential yeah. would be your ability to perform certain type of work. Could be a mass, could be VO2 max, and then we have a performance in in small sided game. So the 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 I would say the most simplest model is that. The more potential you have, the better you're going to be in realizing that potential in a small side of the game. So you're going to be running more, you're going to fatigue less, so you're going to recover quicker. So that, that's the main, the main model. And then <clears throat> how we approach that. So first of all, it might not be linear. So it might be a certain point where, in, you know, increasing further in a potential doesn't yield any benefits in, in actually realizing that. So 
for example, you might go from 65 milliliters per minute per kilogram of, you know, VO2 max to 70, and you're not going to be a better player. So it might even be slower. So first of all, the, the, relation, the relationship between those two components is not linear. And second question is that, uh, um, is, that uh, um, is, is only doing soccer or only playing soccer enough to, to increase the potential? That, that was your question as well. And a lot of coaches ask, ask that. Um, so, for example, uh, can you reach this, like I would say, optimal, not max, maximum, can you reach this optimal level of development by only doing soccer training or small-sided games? And it, it goes back to this idea that we actually don't know. And what can we do in real life when we actually not when we are not certain or we are not, not certain that our models are correct. So in my opinion, and I spoke with a lot of coaches, uh, the opinion is that because we, we, we are dealing with uncertainty, the best thing you can do is to, to do both. So you want to, you know, you make, you want to make sure you're doing small side games and you want to make sure you're doing certain type of dry intervals or intervals without the ball. Mm. And here's the, another question. So, uh, what, you know, that extra conditioning, what type should that extra conditioning be? So, uh, Steven Saylor is, I would say, one of the top-notch researchers in, you know, low distribution in endurance sports. So, they, they what, show what, this. What, what, what was his name there again? Uh, Saylor. Saylor. Okay, I just want to yeah. go ahead. Steven Saylor. So, uh, he's the guy behind the polarized training. So, he showed that the high-level endurance athletes like 80 to 90% of their time spend training under, under lactate threshold. So this middle ground, like threshold work is minimum in, 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 you know, say in distribution. So you have this polarized or, or like a J curve, uh, when it comes to distribution. So around 80% of, of time is spent under lactate threshold and around 20 or 10% is spent, you know, performing high intensity training. And then you might say, okay, how, how can I apply this to team sports? The, in, in my mind, we, first of all, we need to look at the, the overall, overall um, distribution, including the soccer practices, not only conditioning. And then I would say that, um, so if the soccer practices are sort of like a lower intensity, I would say, uh, then you want to make sure that, that your extra conditioning covers the opposite side, if that makes sense. Mm. So, for example, recent research showed that there are no high-intensity sprints or high-intensity uh, longer sprints in small-sided games. Yeah, I was, I was actually I was going to bring that point up to you. Go ahead. I'll, I'll touch on that first. Go ahead. So if that doesn't happen in a soccer, soccer practices and, and I would say specific conditioning, then you, 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 you want to make sure you're covering that with a with a no ball conditioning. Uh, so again, it's, it's like this complementary slash barbell strategy. So, uh, first of all, because we know, we don't know, well, we don't know what, what are the, you know, uh, is the model correct? We are dealing with uncertainty and we don't know what, what, what are the optimal levels for a certain athlete. So we are dealing with a lot of uncertainty and we need to perform that in a, in a team based settings. So the, in my opinion, the best approach will be to perform all of them. So yeah. perform, yeah. you know, 
doing a hard conditioning and doing a you know small sided games, and uh, you want to make sure that if you're if you're hitting certain in quotation mark qualities in a small sided games, you want to make sure you complement them with general training. So uh, again, comes back to this decision making in uncertainty and making making sure you're you know you don't put all the eggs in one basket. And also at the other side, you wanna you wanna really invest in in certain qualities that might get you the biggest benefit. And and speaking of that, in when I was in Hammerby in the second second season, a coach decided to go you know full on with uh, um, Raymond Verheyen stuff. So we didn't do any hard conditioning. And I thought the players gonna love it because players always complain when when you do running without the ball. Yeah. So which is so the and. Actually, the other thing happened. So after the preseason, the athletes complained they didn't have any hard session. So they they said, okay, we did everything with the ball, but I, pretty much they said I didn't puke. I, I didn't puke once. So um, some of this, you know, conditioning is also mental. So some of these athletes need this type of really really hard conditioning, so they make sure that okay, I, I you know. Uh, I would say I put my money in the bank. I'm going to use that in, in, in competition period. Don't, don't, so, don't, don't say that to James Smith. Fucking hell, you go mad. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I, in my mind, I think we need to do both and be smart about it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, again, like, it, like so many times we hear this, but like it nearly always comes back to like that middle ground, and that's why most answers to most things are it depends. But I suppose, and also... The more I'm sort of, you know, learning as I get older, the more wisdom I see in that saying from um, Alvar Mio, you know, keep a thread of everything in your program. You know, so again, you go, you're talking about like, well, if you're uncertain, like, you know, uncertain whether to go this way or that way, why don't we just take the middle road here, you know, and again, kind of be, be more be more in the middle of the spectrum rather than being at, at either end or being at, at the extreme end of, of either side of the continuum. So I, I completely agree. And the point I was going to make, you kind of said it there. One thing with all these small-sided games, too, is that, you know, they're, they're, it's not giving players a chance to get upright and sprint. And a lot of people are saying that's leading to a lot of these hamstring issues as well. It's that, you know, that the players aren't getting exposed to that if, they're, if all they're doing is all these small-sided games or if all they're doing is really, really, like, short, repeated sprint stuff. And that's another thing I want, I want to ask you, too, because... You, you talk about this with care to the you know the idea of sprint repeatability and sort of you know lactic capacity if you want to call it that because I would do I would utilize a lot of that stuff with the Gaelic Games teams that I previously used to work with here in Ireland and um you know you brought up a great point and I suppose it goes back to this idea of the anaerobic reserve you know that you know like if you have players who basically are slow and it's just like and then you get people who are like, oh, we're going to do loads of sprint repeatability stuff. It's kind of like, yeah, but you're just making them shit at repeating shit efforts. We'd be better off getting their, you know, their maximum velocity up so that, like, they're, you know, getting their maximal output up so that their operational output would be better then. Have you taught any more on that? Or are you still at that sort of idea that you'd still want to get that output level up so that then their, uh, you know, that their submaximal uh, output levels would be less stressing to the system? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on the same page as you. So I, w- I would say... Um, one of the goals will be to increase this functional functional reserve. I think that that's what it's called. Like mm. you know, make, making sure they are able to sprint. Um, and also, it can be extended to making sure they are prepared for the worst case scenarios. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, leaving the average to 
you know, to, to frequent practices, uh, if that makes sense. So you want to make sure that they are able to fulfill tactical demands when they're really, really tired, um, um, you know, just, you know, preparing them for the worst, worst shit that can happen. Yeah. But then, you know, may, you know, then you, you know, not, not worrying too much about the, the average. And, you know, let's be honest, the average speed in soccer is like, you know, you, 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 you run or you, you cover 10 kilometers in 90 minutes. So just divide that and you're going to see that's like yeah. 10 kilometers per hour if I, if my math is good. The, the, the other thing too, and you, you'll appreciate this too, just going back to that conditioning piece we just spoke about, is that so much of the sport is actually played without the actual, without the actual like sport implement, without being in possession of the ball. And that's, you know, because when you get all those coaches who are crazy, everything has to be with the ball, everything has to be with the sport implement. It's like, you know, do you realize that most of the game you're actually like without the ball? Uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I agree. But you know, that I'm not sure that that's really, that's really, I would say not really important. But w- what's important is not the distribution. Is you know, is is making making an impact when you actually have the ball. If that, oh, if that makes absolutely, sense. Absolutely, because again, as you touched on around, there's decision making to be made then on the ball and. Obviously, then you know this uh, concept of skill acquisition to be able to stabilize your skill under numerous environmental conditions, and then fatigue is obviously definitely one of those. So one one thing I I, I saw in soccer, and that that's quite common, is this uh, um, practicing the penalties, uh, practicing the set pieces, um, and this comes back to um, you know organizing the session. So most of this stuff is practice when, when the athletes are really rested and, you know, heart rate is down mm. and they do like five defensive corner kicks from one side, five, five from the other side, and then, uh, you know, five offensive from one side and five on the other side. And that doesn't make any bloody sense because that never happens in a game. Yeah, like yeah. Like having a five corners in a row. And you're, you're really rested, like your heart rate is down. And you can just, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, with, with your teammates and stuff. So... This comes back to energy system preparation. So, you know, sometimes we need to think outside of the box, or actually we need to use different box, because we're using this VO2 max, you know, model and track and field model. And for example, this type of endurance in quotation mark uh, is ability to maintain quality actions. So quality actions, as I said, is, is you know making quality decisions, having a right timing, having a right distance, and 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 doing that stuff. So. For example, um, set pieces could be practiced when you're tired. And, and tired doesn't necessarily mean you need to tire the athletes further. It's just, you know, maybe distributing set pieces between sets of small-sided games mm. rather than mm. chunking them at the end of the practice. Very good, yeah. Yeah, I like that. So, and, and, and I saw that a, a lot of times. And same thing with the, with the conditioning. So I'll, I'll, I'll use the term dry conditioning. We, we use this in, in, in Serbia. Dry means without the ball. Yeah. So, um, or general conditioning. So general conditioning doesn't need to be separate part of the practice. And that's going to make, you know, athletes whine about it. So you can, uh, last season I was, I was helping my old club here. Um, uh, and because of the snow and because of, you know, other reasons, we, we actually had one group doing small side games and it was six, six with six, I think on a half pitch, if I remember correctly. And the other group did, you know, either, you know, strides or running conditioning or, or we did a medicine ball stuff like low intensity plyos and 
think things like that, explosive stuff, and then we combine them. So, um, I mean, it, it was freezing outside. You you can't let the athletes stand around the pitch. I mean, they can they can play as a as a joker. So the guys who are you know passing the ball, mm-hmm. uh, but this way this way they're they're maintaining maintaining temperature and they are practicing you know something else. And also we have this. I think now it's called a differential learning because you're you're learning one task, but then you uh, inter inter interspread that learning with uh, performing another task, and that actually increases the learning effect. So rather than focusing for like a, a, a chunks of time for like 30 minutes on. Okay, and um, we're back. Just for the listeners, my laptop is shitting the bed here, and Aladdin's been really kind with his patience. So we're just going to pick up sort of where we left off there. Um, so we were just kind of talking about energy system development there for field-based sports. And uh, we were kind of, we left off talking about like the anaerobic reserve and, and the idea of sprint repeatability. So if you just want to take up there again, we'll have... Oh, okay, oh, we, yeah. we, we were also actually, what, what we were speaking about was, remember, the, doing the corner kicks and the set pieces and, you know, integrating some, integrating that into And you were talking about the way... You didn't have to take condition as just a, an isolated block and put it at the end. You could integrate it throughout the session. So, uh, yeah, as I said, uh, there's a there's a big body of research by um, Sailor, uh, which is amazing. Uh, that that shows that high level endurance athletes spend most of their time doing low intensity activities and uh, a bit more a, a bit. A, I would say, um, and and on the other side of the extreme days, they spend around 20% doing, you know, really really intense, high intensity activity, and the, and the middle ground is is gone. I mean, gone. It's 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 lower. So let's say we have, let's say we have like 85% of low intensity activity, uh, 10% of you know really high intensity, and and 5% of uh, of of this medium ground. And medium ground is a threshold work. So in, in in endurance circles, there are two models. We have this polarized model that that I just explained, where uh, it's like a U or J curve when it comes to distribution, and then we have a and then we have like a, a threshold model where most of the training is in this middle middle zone. Uh, and they actually, I think, Sailor did did this study on both high level endurance athletes and and. And recreational runners, and they show that actually polarized training is is uh, is is is, uh, is better in terms of training effects, uh, which is quite interesting because Charlie Francis came to similar conclusions. So he had this high-low uh, approach where you either go, you know, sprinting really hard above ninety percent, and or you or you're doing tempo work, um, which is uh, under 70, 70 percent of your maximum speed. So this zone between seventy and ninety percent. Again, this is sprinting. Uh, it's not not intense enough to to uh, it's not intense enough to create improvements in speed, but it's again too intense uh, for an athlete to to recover for that training. So Charlie Charlie decided to to use this again barbell strategy. So going either really high or or low, uh, and trying to avoid this middle ground. And I think. I think something could be said in, in in team sports as well because certain methods are 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 intense, um, so they they um, put extra oil in the fire in terms of you know training load, but they are not in, as intense to to kind of get get the biggest benefit. 
so I would say we, we should avoid, it doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't do them, but we should try to minimize those types of workloads. Yeah. And again, I'm not sure what those workloads are, and it might be a, a threshold run. So if you're a soccer player and you're doing threshold run, that, that's so for the listeners, that's around, say, um, 10 or 20-minute running, so usually like four sets of 10 or something like that. That's done at around 90%, 90% of your heart rate, 85-90% of your heart rate, or around uh, 80% of your mass, if, if, my, if my memory serves me well. So this is quite drainful for the athletes, but it doesn't give give them benefit, you know, most benefits. So I would say we we should also utilize this barbell strategy in in, in a way that uh, if a soccer practice is covering this big base of low intensity movement or running, which which it is, uh, then we need to make sure that we are covering the high intensity training with with a general conditioning. So in in this way, um, we. With a general condition, we want to make sure we are preparing for the for the biggest um, and most stressful parts of the game, sort of speaking. So rather than than rather than trying to increase the um, lactate threshold or or uh, VO2 max, uh, and this brings me also to to this idea of of the models. So even if <clears throat> even a certain certain models are not um, true uh, in, in a scientific way, in, in, a, in a factual way, they might still be useful uh, in, a, uh, in, in, in pretty much in the decision-making. So, for example, uh, when, when we thought that the Earth is in the center of the universe, uh, that's a called the geocentral model, right, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the sailors were still able to, to, to sail and uh, to get to a point you know, using that type of model, uh, but it's not factually true. But it's still it's still usable if that makes sense. So um, I would say some of the stuff we do in training it, it might not be uh, factually true, but it's still it's still usable for the coaches and and the athletes. Uh, if that make any sense, what I just said, um, I, it, trying to find the philosophical word. Uh, uh, it, it's more like a phenomenal. Um, it's phenomenologically based. So we might say that certain inter- intervals hit, you know, time spent at VO2 max, and that's why they work. And you know, that might be a scientific explanation. But on the other side, it might it might not actually be the case. So it, the case might be that athletes are actually spending time running at certain intensity, or they are making their practice harder, and they are pre- preparing for the hardest parts of the game. And again, we sometimes, as I said multiple times in, in this interview, we are using certain mental models to explain what's happening in reality. Yeah. But sometimes those models might be off. And certain things might be working, you know, because of different reasons. And that's actually my most common um, disagreement with other coaches. So, some, you know, you, you probably were in a similar situation. So some, someone might say that certain methods work because of that and that. And you say, no, it doesn't work because of that. And they think you're, dis- uh, you're disagreeing with their results, which is not the case. So, you know, if you say that this doesn't work because of what you just said, it works because of other reasons. It, um, uh, you, you don't necessarily say that uh, 
the results are not there. The results are there. It's just like you're arguing with someone um, on on their um, causal explanation of why what 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 happened. Mm. If that makes sense. So if someone, if I say, okay, we are doing heat heat drills to increase VO2 max, and VO2 max is going to increase the performance in a game, that might be might be rational using this physiological model, but that not might not be actually the the case in reality. As I said, it might be something else that's that's happening there. So the athletes might be getting used to, you know, running at a high intensity. They might be used, uh, you know, pushing themselves, or these types of um, intensities might prepare the you know hamstrings and prepare the joints for um, most stressful events in a game, or or they might create a fatigue. So you know, the next drill they are doing is you know perform with with certain level of the fatigue and you know makes makes actual practice more intense and that actually makes them more uh, prepared for a game so as i said we we are using diff- different models to explain you know same thing in, in a different ways and i'm not sure which which one is the most correct and which brings me to a conclusion that rather than than i would say blindly following a models that we we are not aware of using i prefer to Use multiple models, mm. so and understand pros and cons of each. And I'm not—I'm actually not the first to suggest this. So, so one, one—I would say the really, really famous guy and a very rich guy is a Charlie Munger, which is—I um, would say the—he's uh, uh, a business business owner with who's the richest guy in the world? Uh, Warren uh, Buffett. Well, I don't know if Warren is the richest, but he's—he's he's, he's Warren Buffett's business partner. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So he's the guy behind this idea of using multiple multiple models rather than you know using only single one. He he calls them a mental models. I think I just I use his his term. So w- what I'm trying to do as a, as a writer and hopefully in this book is to outline certain models that I I found um, w- very useful in, in making decisions and you know understanding pros and cons of of all these models. And as I said, we, we still don't know what's happening in, in, in terms of physiology. And we still try to use those and impose those models in explaining the intervention results, which might be, you know, completely off. So, uh, as a, as a coach, as a coach or, you know, using this or leaning on this artistic side of things, yeah, we need to understand that we are still dealing with uncertainty and we still need to experiment, which doesn't, as I mentioned a few times, it doesn't negate the science and doesn't negate the, the best practices out there. But we still need to start with those and we need to understand that we are dealing with uncertainty and we need to kind of experiment and, you know, try different things with athletes, see, see what, what works. So the, the idea is using this iterative planning and iterative development with the frequent assessments. Yeah, no, like and again, kind of what what I alluded to before, the fucking thing shut the bed here and crashed was that in terms of a spectrum, it nearly always seems to come back near the middle of that spectrum again. So, um, you know, like it, it, even you kind of touched on there a little bit. There's been a big sort of swing towards evidence based. Everything has to be evidence based. But uh, Steve Magnus did a great thing. He said there's also uh, um, practice based evidence as well. So. In terms of you know, just because there is no uh, evidence-based research, 
there's a hell of a lot of practice-based evidence to, to back up what, what, what is possibly seen here. So as you're, you're kind of alluding to there, like, you know, if, if it's working, it's working. It, it still doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to understand why something's working or our mechanism's working or, or why, again, you alluded to there too, that, like, you could be getting results and some person things because of this, but no person things because of this. Again, it's not to have, like, to be an either-or. It's kind of, like, to find out, well, is there a middle ground here of why we're getting this result, so... I mean, also think about think about the elite performance. They're, they're on the edge. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're on the edge of what's, what's possible by humans. No one... No one was on that territory. That's like an unknown territory. Absolutely. How, where's the evidence on that? Yeah, yeah. Again, because like, most research is always on a mean, and we're talking about like that standard deviation. And then would even in that standard deviation, it's the minute of that standard deviation as well. Yeah, exactly. So I always think about the elite performers who are actually pushing the limits of the hum- humans, not not like average of the group, but pushing the, the 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 outlier the 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 long tail sort yeah, of yeah, so great, where's great where's the evidence for for that we don't have even any evidence so and we we, we, won't, we won't either because again if you, you know as well in statistics statistics is driven by, like is big time driven by statistical power and the you know the size of the sample group and the problem is that like you're never going to get the sample size group for the statistical power of the research because one, these elite athletes are, are in the minority, and two, you're never going to get these elite athletes to do that research because they have to train. Yeah, exactly. So, as I said, we, we are left with with uncertainty. So, uh, one really great book that I you know I can I can suggest checking is called Risk Savvy by Gert Gigerenzer. Mm. So he is actually a, a he's a critique of of uh, thinking fast and slow by Kahneman. So think you know, and thinking fast and slow is quite quite popular now in in coaching circles. Yeah, so yeah. thinking fast and slow pretty much says that your intuitive brain, system one, is wrong. And 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 Gerd Gigerenzer said that's not the case because it, it it evolves because it deals with uncertainties. And the main point by Gigerenzer there's is is that there's a difference between risk and uncertainty, and that's pretty much the same with um, Nassim Taleb. So the risk is something you can calculate. So, for example, if I throw a dice now, I know there's there's one one in six chance that I'm gonna throw a certain number. But because I know I know the shape of the uh, of the um, uh, the dice, I know that there's a, uh, six sides, and I can calculate the probability. But what what happens when I don't know the shape of the dice? You know how many sides it has. You know how someone's gonna react. So in, in this case, we need to use system one. And system one evolved to be used in, in, in those scenarios. So Gerd Gigerenzer said that we are using, you know, very, very simple heuristics that help us uh, in, in making decisions in uncertainty. But, for example, if, if, if we know probabilities and we, we know the potential outcomes, then this optimization approach of system two, you know, you, pretty much that's a Bayesian approach uh, it, it's 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 better uh, makes makes better inferences. But when you don't know what's out there, what you gonna do? You, you know the simplest simplest thing is that to use heuristics. And isn't would you not say that sport is mostly played in system one two? I mean it is a reptilian brain activity, you know. Whereas because again, like everything's happening so fast in sport that it just doesn't have time to go into system two. Yeah, I'm, I'm I would say yeah, I would say certain certain elements. So. Um, you know, being tactically prepared is, is involving or 
I would say having a system of play or, or um, a strategy game plan is system two. It's just making sure that mm. you are covering the something that's more, I would say, um, time resilient or time stable. Yeah, uh, yeah, I get what you. I get what you're saying. But you know, you know, when you when, when you're the, where the rubber meets the road, then you need to use system one. Yeah, yeah. So there's a one one quote, but I think I cannot. I think I cannot find it. So that I think it uh, goes something like like in, in the in the worst case scenario, your your performance drops to uh, to um, to the. Uh, to the highest level of preparation, or lowest level of preparation, something like that. So, ah, might be too, might be too late for my brain to work anyway. Don't worry, uh, don't worry about it. This, Milan, uh, just w- one final quick one, and then I'll just we'll get you then to just do like the quick fire, like the advice and, and top resources, and then obviously uh, give your details. Just in terms of, of mon- monitoring, Milan. So with velocity-based training, RPEs. Like I know that's a whole podcast in itself, but where are you currently with, with those two things in your whole sort of um, training philosophy again, if you want to put it that way? So I, I know you've done a bit with VBT and you've done a lot with um, um, RPEs. And you had a great podcast with uh, Dr. Mike Zordos and you, you guys got really into, you know, uh, DUP and the use of RPE. But in terms of just monitoring and, and utilizing VBT and RP, RPEs, are you still... Have you, are you, do you still think about that? Have you changed any of your thoughts on that, or where are you with that stuff? I mean, I'm, I'm still gonna. Actually, I plan doing a PhD on on this topic on velocity-based training. Okay. But as I said, I, I don't believe it, it's end-all, be-all, um, and and there are still, I would say, you know, pros and cons, and there are still, I would say, errors in this approach. It, it's a step forward, but it's not a solution to a, a training questions. That, mm. That's the thing. People think that's a solution to their questions. Just with, with, with velocity-based training, Brandon, could, could you maybe just, for listeners and myself, what are the pros and then what are the cons of UT? So I know one of the pros is that it, it, it allows you to get a good training effect and not go to failure and accumulate as much fatigue because you can, you know, because of, of getting back that feedback of the bar velocity and sort of the relationship to, you know, or, or M's and, what, what what are the pros and cons of using BBT? Do you think? I mean, before I start, do you do you need a device that that costs like a few thousand dollars to tell you not to go to failure? Well, you could you could, <laughs> use, you could use the well, the, the, there is the the push band and stuff like that, which are more affordable. But yeah, ex- I mean, still, do, do you need a device to measure your speed to tell you not to go to failure? Which is you know. Oh yeah, I know, I know, but so but I know with, at least I've worked with it. Sometimes helps to have that objective marker there. You know, say like because like, you see, you know yourself, you still get those guys who no matter how many times you tell them it's too heavy, they'll still go. Whereas yeah, if, yeah. if you're like, here's a number on this, you have to hit. If you're not hitting it, you're not hitting it's, it. Uh, there is something in providing objective objective feedback in terms of speed, and there's a research showing that. Yeah. You're perf- so if you're doing say you know jump squats or kicks bar jumps, mm-hmm. having a object objective feedback in terms of height or in terms of velocity, uh, first of all, in, in increase the performance, acute performance, and second of all, in increase chronic increases in performance. So you're going to get better if you have a instant feedback. Mm. And sometimes, having said this, sometimes inst- instant feedback can be detrimental. And I, I said a few times with Olympic lifts, so, and I'm not going to go there in a deep, so, uh, 
sometimes if if you say it's someone you know doing a sub maximum Olympic lift to go faster, so he end up he might end up changing the technique and might end up catching the bar higher. So you know rather than going a, a full clean, he might perform a power clean or eventually a muscle clean, things like that. So anyway, the there are multiple uses of of uh, LPTs or uh, linear position transducers or devices that tells you the velocity of the bar. So there are, uh, as I said, multiple, multiple uses. And in my mind, velocity-based training is is using velocity to prescribe training. So rather than using percent of 1RM or absolute load, you're going to use velocity to, pres- to prescribe. So, for example, rather than saying use you know 75% and, and do five reps, I might say, okay, I'm, I might say, uh, find a weight uh, where your initial rep is, you know, 0.4 to 0.45 meters per second. And once you find that weight, uh, say perform reps until you hit 0.35 meters per second. So that's that's velocity-based training. So using velocity to prescribe training, uh, both in terms of initial, both in terms of uh, weight used. And number of reps performed. So, that, uh, and again, there are there are multiple systems, or I would say multiple frameworks of that. Um, again, you can combine it with using um. So, what I just mentioned, that's like a full blown velocity based approach. But you can use uh, combinations. So, for example, you might say uh, use seventy five percent of your pre cycle one RM and do reps until you hit certain velocity. So, this velocity is like a quality controller if that makes sense. So, again, multiple, multiple uses. Uh, the problem, and as I said, it doesn't solve your questions, your training questions. First of all, it doesn't solve how many sets you should be doing. So, you, you're still uncertain in terms of how, how much work needs to be performed. And you, you, might, you, might put, you, know, you might put certain quality thresholds. So, for example, don't go over nine, uh, don't go, uh, don't, don't perform more sets when, when, when your average set velocity goes below, say, 95% or 90%. But these are still numbers that needs to come from somewhere. So as I said, it's, it's a useful tool, but it still doesn't sort out the, the most important questions. And those questions are how much should you lift, how frequently should you lift, and, 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 and so forth. So uh, also... Even if you have profile, say you have a velocity velocity profile, you're gonna you're gonna have velocity profile for a single exercise, and you know how that translates to different exercises and so forth. So it's really really it's really complex, and it's a step forward. And having said this, uh, complex problems doesn't need complex solutions, and most of the complex problem actually demand a very simple solution. Right. And that was a topic of one of the videos I made on I think it's called. Uh, heuristics and prelipin and velocity-based training, where I said that, you know, all this research on velocity-based training and collecting the velocity stuff is going back to using a bloody prelipin table, which is quite simple. So, again, it comes back to idea by Gert Gigerenzer of, you know, very complex and uncertain situations could be could be solved most robustly using very simple rules. So, very simple rule will be don't do more than three to five reps per set if you want to maintain quality of the reps. And man, we just spent like five five years researching that really simple rule that you know that's been there for like 
decades. It's so funny you say that too, because that's what Don Baker chose. He's like, after Beth's heard Rep, you start to drop off. Yeah, exactly. So again, uh, I think uh, for third rep for lower body, and I think for fifth rep on the upper body, yeah, yeah, that should be like a threshold. And like, okay, we just spend like year, years and years researching and spend money in you know in buying equipment to figure that simple rule. So, and it, it's funny because it's very it happens in other domains, as I said. So, you know, that's why I, I suggest checking the risk study by Gerd Gigerenzer goes into, you know, Definitely, making yeah. decisions in okay, uncertainty. I'll, I'll get you to send it to me and I'll link open the show notes. Yeah, so here's, here's a, you know, we, we, we don't want to make this like a three-hour marathon podcast. So well, here's if, a, if, I, if my laptop, <laughs> I'm just here biting my nails and I know this fucking laptop's going to shit the bed again and I'm loving this so much. Like if, if I had a, if I was fully comfortable with my laptop, I'd stay here all night with you. Man, if, if if listeners want want extra of this boring stuff, I'm I'm free to to expand, but well, maybe some in few weeks. Absolutely. So absolutely. here's a real real life example from another domain. Uh, there's a guy called Markowitz. He got a Nobel Prize for something that's called like a minimax portfolio theory or something like that. So pretty much he goes into using a historical data in, in, for certain investments. He create a mathematical model. What would be the best distribution? Uh, to to certain uh, investments. So, how should you distribute your 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 money in to get the biggest benefit, to protect from the risk and get the biggest benefit? So he got a Nobel Prize for this theory. Uh, but the funny thing is, when this guy Markovic retired and he started you know investing in certain uh, stocks, uh, he didn't use his theory. He used very simple heuristic called one over n. So he equally split his money to to different stocks. And when they ask him is, uh, you know, why didn't you use your own theory? So for his theory to work, you need like 30 years of data to be optimized. So here's, here's this this difference between optimization and, and using really simple heuristics. So optimization work better when you have a lot of data, when you have, um, I would say, predictable risks. But when you don't know what's going to happen and, and you know, stock market, you, you never know what's going to happen. And there's research about this stuff, actually. I, I just read a, a paper about it. So they show that very simple rules can be very, very, and sometimes even better than very complex models. So, and I'm like, okay, so what what's sports science doing now in, in our field? It's just making more and more complex models with, you know, injury prediction, velocity-based training, optimizing this, optimizing that. And at the end of the day, we are still uncertain about things and the coach is still going to use very simple heuristics. So one over N heuristic will be, could be applied to periodization. It means like if, if I don't know what's going to work, my best bet is to divide my training to all the qualities I identified as important. Yeah, it's, fu- it's funny because you see, see the same thing too. Again, we spoke about investment there and Charlie Munger. It, it, I read Tony Robbins' book, Money, this year. and All the top guys in investment are, are all talked about as, asset allocation, like spreading out all your assets again. So that it's a, it's basically, it's an, and then all talk about a, asymmetric risk reward. So the biggest reward is a little amount of downside. But again, they, they were very much into this idea of like spreading out their investments among as much as they could to, again, decrease the downside. So similar to what you're talking about training there, instead of going with like one particular model or training just one sort of quality, like train them all so that because it causes this uncertainty. 
I think in, in our field, uh, if someone randomizes, if you said someone, like, look at this scenario. If you ask me, how did you design this workout? And I say, I just randomize it. You will say, like, you're an idiot. Like, there's like a books about it and you just randomize it like you, you pull it out of your ass or what so you might and that, we, we look at it as, as something that's wrong but in my mind like we we can use randomization to our benefit if that makes sense and most of the uh, most of the effects of periodization might be actually because of the variations very i was just about to say that to you it's just that, that's the, been the big thing i was speaking about worrying about it Saturday and when i met Derek Evely like it's it's kind of like when people say, oh, this model is better than this model because it produced this result in, in this study. And it's like, how do you know it was the actual model or the method and it wasn't just variation? Yeah, exactly. So it, it, it goes back to this example that I said that we are using different models to explain things. We are, I'm, exactly. we are not nega- negating the results. The results yeah. are there. Yeah. We're just ne- negating the explanation of the process involved. That's a great point. So, yeah, so great you point. might say, okay, I believe hypertrophy followed by power, uh, hypertrophy followed by strength followed by power works in that specific sequence because of yada, yada, yada. And it might actually be just variation of the training that actually gets the effects rather than specific sequence. And having said that, for example, I, um, working in team sports, I, I, might, I might have this perfect elaborate plan when we, when we spend like three weeks in anatomic adaptation, then hypertrophy, and then, you know, strength, maximum burning, strength yeah. and power. And this can, like, even if, it, if, if this is biologically better, maybe it is biologically better, but logistically it's very fragile. For example, what happens if I, if a few individuals join the club a bit later and that happens? Mm. What, what happens if I have few athletes going for a national training camp and they're away from, for two weeks? Like or, how so, gonna, or, or someone's injured. Yeah, exactly. How I'm going to re- integrate them back in a training? Like, oh, they just missed like crucial two weeks of a hypertrophy phase. So my, my strength is not going to work for them. Or, or they might get sore because they, they skip phases and things like that. So, you know, we, we need to take, besides biological, um, biological explanations of certain models, we also need to think about, you know, risk involved. Like what happens if someone missed this? What happens if someone is joined later in this program? Yeah. And and as as I said, and as I said earlier, is that uh, if you randomize things, you, people think you're an idiot or you don't know shit. So for example, uh, at the start of the season, if the coach has everything elaborated and everything plan for a whole season, you're gonna congratulate him and tell him he's a great leader and you know he has. He has everything controlled. But that's actually not the case. It's an example of fragilista. So rather than having like really elaborate plan, like long-term plan for like next six, six or 12 months, I would rather have like really, really rough sketches and then iterate the planning. So like every, every, every two, three weeks or four weeks, you, 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 you replan things and then you see how things evolve. So as I said, this is quite common in, in software industry called a, a lean startup. So you start with a very simple product called MVP, minimum viable program. And I have like two, two kind of synonymous terms in, in training. I call them minimum viable performance and minimum viable program. So sometimes you, you join the team, you don't know what, what, you know, what, what you might expect, what, who you're dealing with, what's the equipment. 
So you, you rather than trying to optimize and find the ideal program, and I suffer from that because I'm a, a perfectionist, so I find this solution of you know just starting with something. It's called minimum viable program. Then you go for like two two weeks, and then you you know you replan. See, okay, this works with this doesn't work. Maybe I should change this and that. So rather than having these, uh, this is called a waterfall planning. So rather than having these nice elaborate phases, we should rather go with this iterative planning. So this is the idea behind behind something that I like to call agile periodization, which is like a framework trying to put all this, what's being said in, in something that could be actually applied in practice. Mm-hmm. So dealing with uncertainties in you know decision-making, dealing with uncertainty, uncertainties with um, risk involved, you know, um, um, athletes being injured, coming in the team, going from the team and, and so forth. So, um, Hopefully, I'm 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 gonna cover all this in in an upcoming book. Um, it might be like in two years or something. But um, um, this is something that I really really want to write because it's just bothering me. Yeah, you need to get it out of your head. So <laughs> exactly right. So so I'm definitely gonna get you back on because uh, I, I want to touch on RPE and um, I also wanna. I remember you put out on on, a, on Facebook once. You were like, I think about just doing an MBA. So. I know that you know one thing that really attracts me to your work as well is that uh, you know that you're 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 a generalist too, in that you read you know um, way like you you read from multiple areas outside of physical preparation like myself you know so you know I know that you read like about econ- you know the economy and and you know you obviously you have a background in statistics but you know I know that you read. You have a very eclectic background when it comes to your reading, so you have a very broad uh, base in terms of your general knowledge. And it's something I, I've, I've spoken about with others that the, the 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 more I meet particular masters in a particular area, so the more I meet masters of a craft or you know experts in a profession, the more I realize that nearly all of these masters and all these experts, even though they're they're experts or masters in a specialized area, they're they all have this massive general base of knowledge that supports their expertise or, or, or their mastery in their specific area for which they're known. So it's a common theme I've seen with all these people who are masters in a particular area. They have this very broad base of, of general knowledge as a foundation to their specific knowledge in a specific, in a specific area that they've mastered. So that's definitely something I, I sense from yourself, and it's, uh, it's something that, that very much is uh, akin to like how I like to see realities uh, have this broad base of knowledge and read from many different fields. I feel it makes me a better coach at the end of the day. Yeah, we are, we are lucky that the complex system has this generalizability be- between. Yeah, it transfers you know, to everything. Yeah, every, every, yeah. Every, everything is connected. It's universal. But Milan, now just just to wrap up because again, I'm I'm not messing. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm afraid to move because I just think if I move, the laptop's going to explode in my face here, and I don't want to have to fucking restart it up again. So uh, just finishing up, what what would your what have been your so just we'll go with top mistakes, your advice, your resources, and then we'll finish up with where people can find out more about you. So kind of a bit of a rapid fire. What would you say have been the biggest lessons, Maladin, you've learned so far in your thirty five years of, of being on planet Earth? First of all, I would say um, negative knowledge, as I mentioned before, is more robust. So you, there's a lot of way to succeed, but you know. People who fail usually do the, the, the bad things similarly. So they do similar things badly. Yeah. So knowing what not to do might be better than knowing what to do, if that makes sense. So I would say that the, 
priority number one of the strength conditioning coaches or anyone pursuing international career is to find a spouse that's supportive. Mm. So it shouldn't be a, a extra burden. It should be helpful, if that makes sense. So that's and a lot of a lot of authors out there, like outside of our domain, say that you know making a bad decision in that is is a sure way to get hell out of your life. Yeah. So that's that's one main thing is just make sure that you have a right spouse. I and take I, I take your wife's not in the room there. No. <laughs> Ex-wife. Ex-wife. So, excuse, excuse me. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, so that that's um, that's the main thing. Uh, well, it's funny you say that because Bill Harmon said the same thing to me on his podcast interview. He was like, make sure you pick your partner very very wisely. Yeah, I I cannot agree more. So I I have a I have a friend who has. A, um, really, really supportive spouse. She travels with him, um, you know, helping with kids and everything. So uh, that that's really, really helpful. At least it's not it's not harmful. Um, um, second thing would be, oh man, it's 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 tricky. So th- there's one book I actually finished reading. It's it's I would say from a manosphere. Maybe it's maybe it's a, a post-divorce thing or middle age crisis. Uh, there's a book called um, Bachelor Pad Economics, and it's an amazing book for actually for males for 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 uh, male listeners. Bachelor uh, Bachelor Pad Economics. It, yep, it's nice. an amazing book. It's I, I wish I read that book like when I was 17. All right, definitely check that out. <laughs> so it's, it's just a book about uh, what not to do. Like as I said, negative knowledge is more robust than a positive knowledge. Just making sure that you don't do crazy mistakes. Yeah. You know, don't get fucked up. And, you know, the, the success will happen by itself. There's a multiple, multiple, numerous ways to succeed, but there's a few ways to, to get your life, you know, really, really fucked up. You yeah. know, one is getting in depth. So don't get in depth if, 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 if possible. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So, so... Choose your partner well. Uh, that's a great book too. Bachelor, <laughs> bachelor Pad Economics. Um, then, in terms of your your top, well, I, I suppose that they're lessons and advice. But have you any other top advice to the listeners? Like anything else? Like it doesn't have to be just coaching. It can be life advice. It can be like what would you what would you anything else there you you put to that or any other lessons? Oh man, I'm I'm becoming becoming stoic lately. So. Um... Gratitude and journal and kind of take things as the way they are. Man, I, I just tattooed a memento mori on my wrist, so it reminds me that we, we have a limited time on this earth and, you know. Well, if, you, sh- if, you, if you read fucking Sapiens, you don't know. That man's talking about living, beating death forever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the second book you just published, right? Yeah. Homo, and, and Homo, Homo Deus. Homo, Homo Deus, yeah. But at the end of Sapiens, he speaks about it as well, so. Um, yeah, you don't know. But then, okay, so then the, the last one then for you would be um, in terms of your top resources, Malad. So, and again, this could be resources, do it doesn't just have to be do with strength and conditioning or physical preparation or sports science or nutrition. Now, it can be in those, but it can be anything to do with life. It can be you know, a top book, a uh, um, podcast, an uh, audio program, online course, an individual person you want to mention. It can be anything. It can be do with spiritual development, personal development. Like what would your top resource be? Or if you want to give top resources for kind of each area, you're more than welcome to as well. 
Oh, that's tricky one. I'm probably gonna send you a list over email, maybe maybe later when I when I grab something to eat yeah, or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That, that's perfect. That's even better. That's even better. I'll put in the show notes. So, right. So then, well, listen, we'll wrap it up then. In in terms of uh, what you got going, you know, uh, obviously you had uh, complimentarytraining.net. So maybe just tell the listeners, you know, where they can contact you, your Facebook, your Twitter. Tell them about complimentarytraining.net. Like, what is it? Uh, the membership site, some of the some of the the products you have going on over there. So, just fill us in on those. So yeah, the the the, the site is complimentarytraining.com or .net. Both both works. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a uh, it's a blog or, or, a, or a membership site, uh, and we have few products that that we sell, um, and that they're free for for um, uh, for uh, members. Um, we have a strength card builder, which is, you know, for, for creating, uh, printout cards for teams working in the gym and pretty much, uh, resulted from, from my struggle in, in getting, getting organized when I work as a strength conditioning coach with team mm-hmm. teams. And the second one is annual planner. Well, we have few versions. Actually, the, the latest one is, is for a Google sheets, which is great when, when you want to collaborate on, on making a plan with multiple people at the same time. Actually, if you ever use Google Sheets, it's a fantastic tool. You can leave comments, you can chat at the same time, you can see who's editing what. So it's a fantastic tool for making annual plan, actually planning. Especially in, 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 in high performance teams, there's n- never a single guy doing all the planning. So you, you kind of distribute, which, which goes well with uh, distributing risk also. You don't want one guy to make all the decisions. Um, and we just we just launched a new app, which is a web web app called um, AthleteSR.com. So you yeah, can go there, AthleteSR.com. But, but, but I was just I was just about to ask you, yeah. So seeing the added scheduling train sessions, data collection from your athletes and everything, yeah, it looks fantastic. How, you must have been working on that for a while. Um, like last summer, I, I got a first sketch. I got an idea. Um, it's a pretty much a, a very simple calendar that allows. Um, it's a team calendar that, that, that helps with scheduling stuff for, you know, individual athletes or groups of athletes while also provide a, a survey builder, which is if you ever build a survey for an email survey, it works like that. So you just put the elements and you create a survey. So we also have, um, we also have pre, pre-built templates, which is just, you know, a starting point for athletes, for coaches. Um, for example, we have a wellness survey and we have a, this body diagram element, which you, which you can use to, you know, let, let the athletes pinpoint, you know, sore areas or sore spots or things like that. So it's useful. It's very useful. It's very simple, actually. It's nothing groundbreaking. It's very mm-hmm. simple and helps you, you know, get organized, collect, collect some data from the athletes. But the, the, um, the beauty is in the simplicity, so. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't do any uh, visualization or analytics uh, because we, we didn't have the you know budget and time to do it. And and you know people usually when they analyze the data, they they use different techniques and they use different different stuff. So I decided to make sure that uh, the app does few things really good and you know leave leave the analytics to a professional tool such as Tableau or Power BI. And we we want to make sure that connectivity with the app is outstanding. So uh, I believe it is. It, it still, it's, there's still work to do, but um, it's good at collecting stuff and it's good at exporting that stuff. So you can you can analyze uh, analyze the data in your you know preferable tool rather than you know using you know our dashboard or whatever. So um, that that's one one main aspects of of uh, you know I would say decisions behind behind this athlete SR. 
just making sure that does few things, you know, really good and leave other things to other apps, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Milan, the very, very last thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually excited to ask you this question because there, there's an individual that both me and you love, Tesla. But, uh, if, if you, if, if you could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who, who would you bring to dinner and why? Ooh. I think I'm too hungry to answer that, but I'll try. Let me see. Yeah, well, I was going to say that this is it. Well, after this, we'll, we'll, we're done. Because I'm hungry, you're hungry, and I'm going to fucking have to get a new laptop. <laughs> Man, I like your HR questions. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in five years? I love those questions. Like uh, Man, uh, probably Charlie Francis. Uh, yeah, cool. Charlie. Would you, um, would you, would you bring Tesla? Tesla? Yeah. I don't know, maybe. Uh, foo. Tricky. Very, very tricky questions. To be honest, I don't know. I well, need to think about it. I need yeah, to think about it. <laughs> well, this is the whole thing. Like, uh, we're, we're, we gotta go to dinner now. This is like, you know. Yeah. Man, Jordan Peterson. I wanna, I wanna talk to this guy. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's the guy. <laughs> Sweet. I mean, I've been listening to his stuff for like, a months and months and you know I'm, I'm i'm hardly waiting for his upcoming book called like 12 principles i think something like that so he will be the guy to talk to definitely so Someone we got we got charlie francis jordan peterson by three more peterson uh some historical maybe um J- jesus <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe him yeah um uh, I, w- I will say maybe odyssey or ulysses Seems like really interesting guy. No special powers, but being really, really good. Um, who else? No, not sure. Not sure. Um, I'll tell you what. You, you can think about it because it'll, it'll, it'll make me have an excuse to get you back on because we have, we've, we've, we've or, we've or P to talk about as well, and then we've many other areas I want to talk about. So again, I could stay on the phone to you for fucking ten hours if, if we had so. If, if someone would cook food while we were on the phone here. Uh, but listen, uh, Mladen, thanks so much for your, your time. I really, really appreciate it. And just for the listeners, my fucking call dropped off. Like At the start, my fucking laptop shut the bed. Halfway through, it shut the bed. And then it shut the bed again, so three times. And Mladen was just nice and patient every time, saying, no problem, I'm here. So and we're after coming out with it. I think, I think we're, on, we're on maybe about two hours and 20 minutes or something like that. So I'll divide, and it's good, I'll divide this up. Um, so Mladen, thanks a million and uh, just obviously stay on while I just wrap up here so guys make sure you head over to complimenttraining.net or .com I actually didn't know if .com too I'll obviously have that linked on the show notes and everything that Mladen spoke about he's an absolute genius when it comes to you know everything to do with physical preparation sports science um, you know I suppose genius is a word that's thrown around a lot but Mladen's been a huge influence on in me since 2008 end of 2008 2009 Always really, really appreciated the work you put out there. Um, and it's funny when you said you're a perfectionist, but I, I, I couldn't have, I couldn't have, uh, could, you couldn't tell with the, the stuff you put out. Of course, you knew you're perfectionist. Everything you put out was like top class on your, like your, even your infographics and all that and your website and the information. So you can definitely tell that you, you have such passion for your work. So, and um, thanks for everything you do. So guys, just going to wrap up now. Do, as I always say, the very podcast. I'll talk to everyone soon. Take care and stay strong.